Hello and welcome to another episode of the Europeans. We are in two different cities as usual, but where are you actually? I don't know. Where are you? London town. It's nice here. This um... is my first time recording my boyfriend's new place. And uh, yeah, it's it's considerably nicer than my flat in Paris. So I think I might just kind of stay here. Was, was that like a big bold declaration that you're quitting your job and moving to <laughs> London? You heard it here first. It's just so nice here. And also London is still part of Europe, just about. So I think that'd be fine, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, only for a few more months. We're not talking about that, Katie. Yeah, sorry. The one thing that we cannot and do not talk about on this podcast, the B word. Um, But you're also in your new house. Are you all right? Because I was perusing your Instagram this week and I saw that you posted some stories of yourself listening to the church bells which are right next to your new flat in Amsterdam very lovely church bells which ring every 15 minutes is it yeah and they don't only ring every 15 minutes they play like a tune every 15 minutes that lasts about 45 seconds and then they played a whole concert on Saturday night that went on for two (laughs) hours while I was trying to work at home um, so yeah, that was a challenge, but it is an amazing apartment. I am so jammy. I don't know how I've managed to get this. All my left-wing credentials have gone out the door because I'm living in this gorgeous apartment. Have you managed to just start ignoring the bells then? Because you did look like you were on the edge of some kind of breakdown. I've stopped noticing them quite as much as I did initially. And I'm sure that will just continue. And actually, they're quite a nice alarm clock. They start at 8am every morning, very loudly, like right by our bed. Um, Like we're literally right below the bell tower. Um, And it's a beautiful view of the church tower from our bed through a V-Lux window. But it is, yeah, it is rather noisy. Do you suspect though that this is why you were able to afford the apartment? Maybe it's that. Although I just don't know why I could afford it it's too nice maybe it's haunted anyway should we like tell people what this podcast is about in case they're new hello if you're new uh this is the europeans this is katie normally in paris currently in london and uh i am a reporter covering the news in france Generally, at the moment, stuff that Emmanuel Macron says, because he doesn't know how to stop talking, more of which later. And you are, who are you? I am Dominic. I'm a singer. I live in Amsterdam. I love Halloumi. Basic. We started a podcast almost a year ago. We wanted to see if people were interested in finding out more about what's happening in the continent of Europe. We felt like we hear so much from America that we thought, why don't we try and see if there is an appetite to find out more about what's happening closer to home, to look at the news through a slightly different lens. And we've been enjoying it, haven't we, Katie? We have. I don't know if the listeners have. Some of them seem to quite like it. For a lot of our British listeners, they seem to quite like having just half an hour every week where we talk about stuff that's happening in Europe that isn't Brexit. Because if you switch on a TV in Britain and there's something on about Europe, it's probably going to be Brexit related. Um, So we try and talk about everything that isn't the B word. And this week, specifically, we are going to be talking about the sometimes forgotten role of colonial troops fighting on behalf of European countries during the First World War, seeing as this weekend was the centenary of the end of fighting of World War One. Do you say centenary? Centenary? I say centenary. Really? Oh, God, maybe I've been saying it wrong all the time. Someone tell us what's right. Sorry, I um, I stopped you in your tracks there. I'm probably saying it in an American way. Anyway, we're going to be calling up an expert in this field, Christian Koller from the University of Zurich, later in the episode. But first... Oh, 
This is a very warry episode, sorry about that everyone, but it isn't every week that we mark 100 years since the end of a world war. And I think it's fair to say that the centenary centenary has been on a lot of European politicians' minds this week, particularly Macron's, because he's been hosting loads and loads of world leaders for the commemorations. And uh, he's been doing a tour of the battlefields, places that a century later are still synonymous with slaughter, places like the Somme and Verdun. Anyway, something that has upset quite a lot of people in France this week was Macron saying that Philippe Pétain, better known as Marshal Pétain, was, quote, a great soldier during World War One. So Pétain, in case your history classes didn't cover it, was this big French general. Uh, he was indeed one of the top generals that helped France to win World War I. The problem is that during World War II, he then went on to be leader of the Vichy regime during the Nazi occupation of France, and he helped deport thousands of French Jews to their deaths. So Macron saying this, it, it reopened old wounds, which actually as a foreigner in France, it's really striking to see how how uh, how raw those wounds still are. Uh, Macron was trying to make this nuanced point about history and how complicated it can be. But in the process of that, he said something positive about a massive Nazi collaborator who helped round up French Jews and send them to death camps. And naturally, French Jewish groups have been among those saying, what the hell? Pétain was a traitor and an anti-Semite, and that's the end of it. The thing I find really interesting about all of this is it shows just how much French politicians still struggle to deal with the legacy of Pétain decades and decades later. He was a war criminal, but until not that long ago, presidents used to go and put flowers on his grave. And even today, if you talk to uh, authoritarian right-wing French people, they've got quite a lot of time for Pétain. Um, they they think he's sort of a good Catholic values, family and country and that kind of thing. So it's very complicated and I think it says quite a lot about how France is still coming to terms with that part of its history. Um, Macron was very unapologetic about saying this. He accused journalists of making a controversy out of nothing, so I guess it's our fault. I do think, to some extent, that the headlines don't quite reflect the nuanced point he was trying to make. Like, it's not like Macron loves Nazis. But should he have said all of this? No, I don't think he should. And in the end, his office ended up saying actually Pétain was going to be dropped from the list of World War One leaders commemorated in a ceremony over the weekend. So a bit of a U-turn. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a sensible U-turn. It's so strange that it's taken this long for people to realise that that's not okay. Yeah, I mean, I think people do realise it's not okay. Um, I think Macron will say the problem is not what I said the problem is the media and the fact that you can't make a complicated argument anymore everything gets turned into a soundbite and I do think there is some of that in there but I also think that it was a bit of a weird fight to pick like of all the people that you could defend it's not really worth spending time on is it yeah i think it is worth spending time on making sure we're not commemorating anti-semites no 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 i don't mean that i don't mean that um no i mean it's not worth like it's not worth macron spending his time on this when there's so much other stuff to spend your time on oh yeah no, I agree about that. Yeah, that's strange. It was a weird one, but I, th I think it was a really interesting insight into how the French view this part of their history. Yeah. Who's it been a good week for? 
Well, you strong-armed me into using this good week section for a news story that I've been rather reluctant to engage with, um, but I'm going to give it a go. Yeah, but that's why we're here, Dominic. We're the only people making Europe interesting. Yeah, and sometimes we have to convince ourselves, as well as you, lovely listeners, that we should all take note. But actually, in the end, when I was researching this, I decided that it's quite a fun topic to talk about, mainly because I get to say the amazing word Spitzenkandidat quite a few times. Spitzenkandidat. Oh my God, are you actually going to find tell me what it means uh well i don't know like etymologically what it means but i yeah i know what a spitzenkandidat is yes so good week goes to manfred weber who he i hear you cry (laughs) well he could potentially be one of the most powerful people in all of europe if he becomes the next president of the european commission as he hopes so the new john claude juncker yeah exactly and this week he took a decisive step in that direction after winning the essentially the primary to be the presidential candidate or spitzenkandidat of the conservative and apparently unironically named european people's party um currently the largest group in the european parliament why is that why does that have to be ironic because conservatives aren't for the people come on this is a neutral podcast and we welcome people of all political stripes dominic okay sorry or or can't we play like left cop right cop so you can be the conservative. I don't want to be right-wing okay, cop. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, anyway, so he will head into the elections in May, hoping to be the next European Commission's president. And he defeated a young, hopeful, attractive, Iron Man competing centrist type, the former Prime Minister of Finland, Alexander Stubb. And despite the fact that Alexander had been campaigning out of the back of his bashed up old car with an army of young volunteers and a hopey changey message, he was still defeated thumpingly by Manfred Weber. Weber is an MEP from Bavaria and a pretty traditional conservative supported by Angela Merkel and uh, what's his name? Kurz of Austria. The current president of the European Commission, as Katie mentioned, is Jean-Claude Juncker. He's from the EPP, the European People's Party, and they may do quite well again in May's election. However, things are going to be a bit trickier than before in terms of becoming president of the Commission. Whereas it used to be that the Spitzenkandidat was chosen based on whichever group had the largest number of MEPs, now the president will need to secure a majority in a vote of the MEPs. And after that, the final decision will be made by EU leaders who have said that they won't necessarily go with the parliament's choice or even with anyone that stood as a Spitzenkandidat. I'm not sure this is great for the EU's desire to seem like a functioning democratic body, but we'll have to see how this plays out. Um, And for now, Manfred Weber, please accept our congratulations in the form of Good Week. Sorry, that's just how I feel about Weber. Um, I have to confess, I knew quite minimal amounts about either of these two gentlemen until now. Um, But I did watch their campaign videos this week. And if I had to judge them on those alone, I would say that Weber had the eyes of a killer and that Starb is kind of like a nerdy Ken doll. I just feel like, like, I don't really, I don't share Stubbs politics especially, but I do quite like the way that he campaigned. Like, he went out and tried to talk to young people and he wanted to have a primary style debate with Weber. Weber just tried to get senior politicians like Merkel to support him and then released this creepy video of him praying. Yeah, I have to say, um, I didn't watch either of those videos because I still don't have Wi-Fi in my new flat. So um, and I'm not going to waste my data on watching two videos of 
Spitzenkandidat. <lacht> They're really worth it. Stubbs One has got apparently Finland's answer to Mumford and Sons as the as the soundtrack. And I was thinking of using it to play us out at the end of the show. So look forward to that coming up. That'll be a nice thing for him to find out that he's been chosen to be the play out music considering he didn't win. <laughs> nice consolation prize. But I just feel like if you had to pick one of these two people to have a shot at making people vaguely excited about the idea of Europe. I'm pretty sure it'd be the other guy. And Weber's not actually that well known, like, or he's known within the political arena, but he's not, he's not like a starry candidate. And it, it was kind of a bit of a surprise that there weren't any starry candidates. And there is a suggestion that maybe the EU leaders really will just choose someone completely separate from any of the Spitzenkandidaten. It could be you, Dominic. I think I've said Spitzenkandidat enough now. So um, why don't we move on? Oh, but before we do, can I just apologize for uh, saying that there were only 11 provinces in the Netherlands last week? There are in fact 12. Oh my God. We got a wave of complaints about this. At least two. Okay, no need to exaggerate, Katie. I think we had one complaint about it, and thank you for pointing it out. You're absolutely right. There are 12 provinces in the Netherlands, and I should know better. The confusion stemmed from the fact that there were only 11 until 1986 um, when Flavorland joined. So, yeah, I just, I'm stuck in the early 80s in my mind at the moment. Um, yeah, anyway, sorry. <laughs> Back to World War One. When you were in school, Dominic, which, as we confirmed, was a really long time ago because you're stuck in the early '80s. What were your lessons about World War One like? Um, I just remember being really confused why it was called the Great War because it wasn't so great. Because it was really not great, and obviously, I'm not stupid. I know that great doesn't always mean positive, but actually, in modern times, it kind of does. Um, that's my main memory of it and just about trenches and people would go and visit the trenches but we never got to go in my class we did and I remember it being really really moving um, probably one of my earliest political memories just seeing these thousands and thousands of graves just on and on and on in the fields in uh, Ypres in Belgium but as far as uh, school itself was concerned I left school basically with the impression that World War One was fought by white men in France and Belgium. Like, I don't know if that was true for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Which is ridiculously Eurocentric. Like, it was called a world war for a reason. It was fought in Africa, it was fought in the Middle East, and it was fought in Asia. And it's also really white-centric. Like, I left school with basically no idea that something like 4 million non-white people served in World War I. 1.5 million Indians alone. Troops from Algeria and from Mali and from Vietnam and the Caribbean. It was like they just got rubbed out of the history books. And the more I've learned about that side of things, the more disturbing I find it. It is really disturbing. But I feel like there is a bit of a shift towards remembering these non-white victims of the war and non-white troops. Um, earlier in this week, for example, Macron, when he wasn't caught up in a whole hoo-ha about Nazis, um, he visited Reims with the Malian president, Keita, to pay tribute to the African fighters who fought on behalf of the French army during the First World War. President Keita's great-grandfather himself was one of the many Malian soldiers who fought and died in the Battle of Verdun. And whilst World War I was by no means the first time that men from European colonies had been used by the European countries to fight and work in war, 
it was by far the biggest mobilization. And we decided that we wanted to find out a bit more about how it was for the people of color who fought on behalf of colonial powers over 100 years ago. So we decided to call up an expert. Christian Koller. Christian is a professor of modern history at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. And among other things, he's done a lot of research on colonial troops. He was really the perfect person to talk about this. So that is what we've done. Should we give him a call? Let's. Christian, thank you very much for joining us on this sunny afternoon in Zurich. Is it a sunny afternoon? Uh, well, not really. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, but yeah, you no doubt have better things to do than podcasting. So thank you very much for taking the time. Can you maybe start by giving us an overview of who the colonial troops were? Like, what countries did they come from? How many of them were there? And which countries, which European countries recruited them? On the one hand, there were colonial troops recruited in the colonies, which were then deployed uh, elsewhere in, in uh, Europe, for instance, at the Western Front. And on the other hand, there were colonial troops deployed in the colonies itself and for the fighting in Africa. It was uh, the British, it was the French, it was the Germans, it was the Belgians. The French also deployed African troops and uh, troops from Indochina in Europe. So they were recruited in, in North Africa, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, then in uh, French West Africa, Madagascar, whereas the British also made use of their British Indian Army uh, for the fighting in Europe and also in the Middle East, so uh, against the Ottoman Empire. It's difficult to establish an overall figure. It depends also whether you just count the troops in a combatant role or also uh, carriers and, and people like that. But um, it's probably, well, one, two or three million, depending on how you count. And how much of this recruitment of the colonial soldiers was voluntary? With the British, officially, it was voluntary. The French had a mixture. Um, in the first place, it was voluntary, but they also had uh, regulations that if they don't recruit as much as they want to, they can force people. In reality, much of it was forced. So um, the French, for instance, in many instances, just sent their recruiting agents to the villages in West Africa and told the village chiefs to provide so and so many young men and if they didn't comply they were threatened to be taken as hostages until they would supply the number of soldiers required and as you as you said earlier the number of colonial troops uh, that you count depends on whether you count certain types of people. Uh, like, for example, there were a lot of Chinese men brought in as labourers to dig the trenches and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but there were plenty of colonial troops that saw frontline fighting, of course. And I know there's quite a lot of dispute about whether these troops just got used as cannon fodder. Um, in your paper, which is fascinating, by the way, you quote the French prime minister of the day of saying he'd happily lose 10 black lives to save a French one. How much evidence is there that these colonial troops did just get used 
as cannon fodder? We have plenty of evidence, like the quote you just mentioned. We have, have also uh, similar quotes, for instance, from people like uh, Winston Churchill and others, which suggest that there was at least the intention to use them as a cannon fodder. There was, for instance, also French General Mangin, who is considered to be the father of the French Black Army, who already before World War I wrote things like... Um, the Africans have an underdeveloped nervous system and therefore they're better suitable for the first wave in an attack in, in trench warfare. So the intention, I think, was, was there. Now, if you look at the figures, there are several methodological problems. It depends also on whether you look just at the overall figures and compare how many Europeans were deployed and how many of them died, how many Africans were deployed, how many of them uh, died. And there you have more or less uh, the same ratio. However, if you take into consideration that, for instance, the, the, the French West African troops usually were only deployed during the summer periods. In, in the winter, they were withdrawn and brought to, to southern France. If you just calculate with the time they really spent at the front, then the number of, of casualties is much higher than uh, the respective number for Europeans. Would you agree that, um, to some extent, the role of these non-white soldiers for many decades was kind of whitewashed out of the history books, that we didn't really talk about it, and it's only starting to be talked about more in the last few decades? I would agree. I mean... In the interwar period, there were uh, quite a number of monuments, uh, memorials in France and in the in the French colonies erected for them. But especially after decolonization, they were largely forgotten. And it's only in the last 10 or 20 years when more research about them has been done. And also the public consciousness in, in Europe about their role has been acknowledged. I've read that some anti-colonial thinkers uh, had the logic that going to war could be a way of putting pressure on European governments to let them govern themselves once this was all over. Uh, Gandhi, I think, supported the war for that reason. Mm -hmm. But I imagine that wasn't the thinking everywhere. Not really. I mean, we, we have these people who thought uh, we have to support the war effort and then as a, as a reward we will get political rights and uh, this is the case with some uh, colonial leaders. This is also the case, by the way, with some uh, African-American leaders. And it's also the case with some uh, leaders of women's movements in, in different European countries. So there were, of course, also people who, in these different movements I just mentioned, who were skeptical and thought this is not going to happen. And in reality, it didn't happen afterwards. On the other hand, within the governments of the the colonial powers and especially in the colonial administrations, there were uh, fears that this deployment and military training of people from the colonies could backfire and that this could trigger rebellions against colonial rule. There were plenty of rebellions in, in several colonial regions during the war. However, not yet these major anti-colonial movements which would then result in this decolonization process after World War II. There were also people who thought that the war could have the opposite effect, that the, the common 
a war experience could lead to bigger loyalty. And that's also something which happened in, in, in some cases, but didn't in others. So there's not sort of one effect in one direction. The situation is more complex. And as for day-to-day life in the trenches and relations between white troops and colonial troops, I'm guessing racism was just a daily fact of life. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, of course. I mean, if you have a look at the way these troops were kept in the barracks, they were strictly separated also from the civilian population in Europe. There were, of course, um, contacts with the European civilians. There were even cases of relationships between colonial soldiers and European women, but the overall system in these colonial armies was highly segregationist. And there was also the idea then that once the war had ended, to bring them back as quickly as possible, not to to let them stay in Europe for too long a period. Were there any examples in which soldiers were well compensated for their work, either in terms of money or the conditions within the colony? Yeah, I mean, there were some soldiers who, after the war, uh, got full citizenship in France. So um, there's one famous case, uh, Bacardi Diallo, he's famous because he was the first French-African person who published uh, his memoirs in French after the war and and he stayed in in Paris and even got French citizenship and others returned and were then very close to the colonial administration. The effect being also that this colonial society has changed. So in many cases, for instance, when the the French recruited soldiers in, in West Africa, the people they got from the local chiefs were the people of the very lowest social strata. There were even some sorts of domestic slavery still in place at that period. And obviously when these veterans returned, they didn't want to become slaves once again. So they, in many cases, did not return to the villages, but uh, stayed in the big administrative centers and became sort of middlemen between the colonial administration and the local colonial population. I just have one last question for you, Christian, and it's possibly a bit beyond your remit, but I didn't learn about any of this at school. Why do you think that is? Um, For quite a long time, also in uh, historical research, the First World War, strangely enough, because it was always called a world war, was considered more or less uh, as, as a European thing. So you had research about the Western Front, You had a bit of research about the Eastern Front in Europe, but not very much uh, beyond. And it has uh, only in the last 10 or 15 years, research has moved towards considering uh, World War I as uh, really a global event. There has always been local studies about World War I in different parts of, of Africa or Asia, but this was sort of not integrated into the mainstream narratives of World War I. And then obviously uh, history teaching at, at school always depends on on the research trends with a delay of maybe 20 or 30 years on, until things trigger down in school textbooks. And so it's, it's uh, only recently, if at all, that these elements have also become part of school teaching. Obviously also 
due to political demands in, in modern uh, multicultural societies that, for instance, in Britain, it has been pressure that obviously the role of, of Indians in World War One should also be part of uh, school teaching. Well, your paper is a very interesting way of people finding out more about it. If they want to, we'll post a link to it. Thank you so much for joining us, Christian, today. It's really interesting to hear your thoughts at this very momentous time, 100 years after the war ended. Um, or almost, I hear that actually some of the war continued in, is it in East Africa for another two weeks? That it took a while for the message to get to them. In East Africa, it took uh, some time until everybody had learned that the war was over and believed it, that this was not fake news, but that it has, is really over. And then uh, only then the German troops um, surrendered to the British also in East Africa. So I guess that in itself is perhaps a part of the whitewashing um, of... <laughs> history that we celebrate the armistice when the war ended in Europe but not when it ended in Africa. As Dominic said we will post a note in our show notes to Christian's paper on colonial troops. It's a really fascinating place to start if you're interested in colonial troops experience of the war. I don't usually read academic papers as my bedtime reading but it's a genuinely really fascinating read and it has all kinds of interesting nuggets about how people thought at the time. More generally, I would really love to know how colonialism gets taught in schools in other European countries. I find it really fascinating. So I would love to hear from listeners about how it was taught wherever you are. Drop us an email. You were saying, Dominic, that uh, there's been quite a lot of anniversaries this week. So it's a bit of a shame that we had to pick just one to focus on. It was Poland's centenary, the 80th anniversary of the Kristallnacht and Nazi pogrom. And last week we had the 40th anniversary of the current Spanish constitution. There have probably been some others. But it's been like packed with anniversaries and we should really cover all of them. We should have done really. I do suspect we'll be coming back on Poland next week uh, after there was this massive nationalist march over the weekend. So watch this space. But until then, I think I need a happy ending. For this week's happy ending, we are heading into the British ballet scene. Very glamorous. Um, specifically, we're looking at ballet shoes or pointe shoes, where until now, non-white dancers could not find shoes that would match their skin tone, as the only shoes on the market were beige, nude, or pink-coloured. I actually think the use of nude as a colour is a bit racist anyway, because it comes from the white idea of nudeness. Anyway, many dancers would resort to pancaking their pointe shoes with foundation multiple times a week to make them blend in with their skin better, which seems like a really laborious solution and really not ideal. Uh, Kira Robinson, who's a London-based ballet dancer, said that she would get through five tubes of foundation a week. It was a very messy process and it also meant that she would have to replace her shoes more often because the pancaking would wear down the material more quickly. And expensive for the foundation itself as well. Yeah, of course. Although she said she got the really super cheap foundation. <laughs> super drug. Yeah, this now all changes because the British ballet company, Ballet Black, has teamed up with a footwear company, Freed of London, to create pointe shoes for black and Asian dancers. The fact that it's taken hundreds of years for non-white pointe shoes to emerge in the ballet world in Britain is a reminder of what a rarity black and Asian dancers are in the ballet world still to this day. 
Um, however, these new shoes are making waves in the ballet world internationally. There was a big article in the New York Times this week about the development in which they spoke to Virginia Johnson, who's the artistic director of the Dance Theatre of Harlem, saying, this isn't about shoes. This is about who belongs in ballet and who doesn't. It is a single that the world is open to you. So the ballet world still has a lot to learn in welcoming and employing dancers of colour, but this is a small step that has made some people very happy and meant that they don't have to buy as much foundation anymore. That's ridiculous. I feel like black dancers should have got some kind of subsidy to make up for all the extra expense. Yeah. It's just yet another injustice, isn't it? It is really ridiculous. Our former guest, Jocaya Diallo, uh, raised a similar point on Twitter about plasters or band-aids, as I think our American listeners would call them. Yeah. For so long, you've only been able to get plasters in quote-unquote nude colour, which is ridiculous. But I think that is changing as well now. Like, I think companies are starting to realise that actually they can make money selling better colours. Tight companies and makeup companies are also getting a bit more on it with realising that not everyone has white skin. They are. Uh, My Instagram is constantly advertising tights to me in different skin tones. Hey, do you ever buy them? No, I just wear nice, thick, sensible, black old lady tights. I think that's very wise. (laughs) I've just revealed my grannyish nature. That anyway, was Katie's nickname at university, everyone. Don't tell people that. But it's true. Uh, my nickname was Granny because my room was always full of people sitting around drinking tea, a bit like your nan's house, um, which I think was lovely. Aww. Well, that's all we've got this week, isn't it? It is. I think that's quite enough, though. Yeah, do you think it is? Yeah, I think everyone's had enough by now. We've managed not to talk about the midterms at all in America, which I'm very impressed with. Well done, us. Well done. And we will be back next week as usual. Um, I will probably be in London next week because one of us, Katie, has to be in London at any one time um, to keep the cosmos in order. And you'll be back in Paris, I hope. We'll have just missed each other. It feels like you've planned this on purpose. Oh, what a shame. What a shame. We can chat to each other on Twitter in the meantime, Katie. Um, you can follow us on our Twitter handle, which is at EuropeansPod. You can find us on Instagram, Europeans Podcast, or on Facebook by typing the Europeans Podcast in. And send us an email. As Dominic said last week, we are very much welcoming your suggestions for stories from your corner of Europe. Got a lovely message from Anders in Bucharest this week. This really lovely project in, I think it was in Kosovo? Keep them coming, everyone. We love hearing from you. And we've had some really nice reviews as well recently. So thank you very much for those. They they make our lives worth living. Can I please play you out, Dominic, with the music from Alexander Stubbs' failed campaign video? It's just so feel-good. Oh, but it's going to be tinged with a bit of sadness for him, isn't it? It is Finland's answer to Mumford & Sons. They're called Sunrise Avenue. They sound like they're having a good week. I hope you're having a good week too. Until next week, everyone, as they say in Finland, hey, hey. Hey, hey. We're not a movie with written lines. Still we're chasing the perfect pretty light. Where are you going? What you try to find? Like it's greener 